Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. If you are listening to this episode on the day of release, which is March 7, happy National Book Day. What better way to celebrate than listening to a new episode of Book Shambles than maybe going back and listening to some old episodes of Book Shambles or better yet, spreading the love of Book Shambles to all of your friends and family and social media followers who may not listen to Book Shambles. Let them know... This is National Book Day and you should be listening to Book Shambles. Thanks, as always, for all your support in that area as well as to our brilliant Patreon supporters. Uh, You can join them and become one if you'd like for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash bookshambles. That's what enables us to keep making the podcast and running the blog network and everything else we do, putting on... Uh, Free events like we're doing tomorrow for International Women's Day at Manchester University. All of that is made possible by your pledges and purchases from our online shop. A reminder about some other events we've got coming up. Chris Lintott and Steve Pretty's Universe of Music at King's Place. That is a fun night uh, where Chris, who you'll no doubt know from the sky at night, and Steve from the Hackney Colliery Band, work through the ways that astronomy and astrophysics and music have a very close relationship and a shared history. That's at King's Place. Tickets are £10.50. Go to the King's Place website or the cosmicshambles.com events page to get tickets for that. And this week's episode of Book Shambles is with... uh, And this week's episode of Book Shambles is the final one we recorded at the Royal Albert Hall in front of a live audience. And this was recorded directly after we did the episode that came out last week with Alan Moore. So Robin and guest co-host and our special guest, Professor Lucy Green, talk about some of the science included in Alan's work and they refer back to that episode a few times. So if you've not listened to last week's Alan Moore episode, you might want to go back and listen to that one before you listen to today's with Professor Lucy Green. Welcome to uh, the Book Shambles. Uh, this is a live Book Shambles from uh, the Elgar Room in the Albert Hall. Uh, Josie Long is currently on maternity leave. And so we got one of... Uh, Josie and I both agreed one of our favourite guests from uh, a previous Book Shambles, who was Sarah Candle. Candle? Kindle. Sarah Candle. Sarah Kindle. Do you know why uh, I call you Sarah Candle? Yeah. Because for listeners won't know about this, but you spent the whole of our warm-up time this evening playing on Elton John's piano that I is in the corner did. of this room. I did tiny dance. On not on the piano over there, there's a red piano over there, and they said that uh, he gave it to uh, Royal Albert Hall, and they and, and they said we're not sure if he gave it to us because he didn't want to pay to get it shipped out. So it was kind of a present, but it was more like a laziness thing of oh, I just keep the grand piano. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I got to play uh, Tiny Dancer on the the red piano that 
Elton John. I was so excited. I was so excited. You were. I know, because I you actually were sending some kind of Instagram message to all your friends. Oh, yeah. So anyway, Sarah Kendall is, our, uh, is, is uh, in here because Josie is not. And we're also joined by um, someone who is... Uh, some people admit originally perhaps know from you work on uh, Sky at Night. Uh, and uh, you are someone whose understanding of astronomy and cosmology is from a, sometimes a different angle to Alan, but I would say it's still there. Uh, mostly a different angle, but I see he's left his water glass here, so I might try and imbibe some of his... Uh, <laughs> oh, well, this is not a good start. You're actually saying that there are homeopathic elements of Alan Moore that have been left on stage. <laughs> yeah. Already your science credentials have gone down the, the memory toilet, as I see it. Um, so, Lucy Green, the... Uh, I, I'm interested to when when you were listening because one of the things that I loved with Alan when there was years ago we did a show where Brian Green was on as well, author of the Elegant Universe, and every now and again Alan would talk about you know once I wrote this uh, story where a planet was so massive it bent time and I realised that might be a bit nonsensical and uh, Brian Green went no that's okay no that 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 will be and by the end of it it turned out that every bit of supposed scientific nonsense that Alan had used in 2018 comic strips was actually now considered to be acceptable contemporary science and so. He left going, I'm surely a genius. And um, <laughs> so were there any particular ideas listening to Alan that you find, you know, th those, those ones we can still play with because they're not too much, I mean, not, not that anything in science is written in stone, but there are things that do become laws and then lower down theories and then there are those ones where you can still just dick around with them. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely an observer, so I'm always about how can I test a theory, but I love the creativity that comes with having more of a blank canvas, but it's not really a blank canvas, is it? Because you're still using physics to come up with your ideas. And I love listening to people like Alan because I, I think he's sort of... Maybe he doesn't recognise how much his reading influenced his scientific ideas. And I think that's what happens. He's a really broad reader. So whether you consciously acknowledge it or not, the fact that he was so on track was probably a result of the fact that he was, a, he was widely read and he was interested in arts and he was interested in science. And, and, and it comes back to these two things not being, not being separated. You can be literate in one and you can be literate in the other two. So I, I, I really liked the ideas of, um, of time. That was what caught my attention, um, as well as the hotel. The Hilberts Hotel is always a fun one to play with. But it's the, the going backwards and forwards in time and the, the different dimensions. I was thinking of his artwork where he talks about creatures from different dimensions coming to, into our dimensions and how he illustrates that using images. And, and that's actually where I get really envious because he's able to put it across in, in a visual way, these very difficult physical ideas, and put them across graphically so that you can get a sort of conscious feeling for, for what they are. You know, we often talk about different dimensions and that we know the three dimensions up, down, left, right, back, forwards, but that there are more dimensions at smaller size scales, for example. And how do you convey that? And he's someone who's managed to do that really well. What do you find, when, when you are trying to convey, especially to you know, an audience, people like me, who, who have no real scientific background but have an interest in science, what, what do you think are the, those elements that you find hardest in terms of perhaps what seems initially counter-instinctual to us or just is something where, not dumbing down, but you know, having mm. to change the language to a point where those who are not up-to-date or have actually started science that they are able to approach them? Yeah, I find it really, obviously, challenging. Um, but I, I find it really, really hard when you're speaking to young students. So I was in a primary school the other week and they were asking me really good questions about 
astronomy and the universe. And I felt really frustrated because I couldn't give them the answer that they needed because their knowledge wasn't yet at the level where they could take it on board. And so I ended up just saying to them, you've got to keep asking the same question year in and year out because as your knowledge grows, you will be able to understand the answer in more and more and more detail. So to give you an example, I was talking about um, magnetism. And to a, what, what were they, seven or eight-year-olds? You know, what is magnetism? It, it's something that you can pick up in a piece of metal and it will stick to something else of certain material. So the knowledge is really limited. And I needed to give them an answer about magnetism that was, you know, at university level. And I could see in their faces that when I answered them, they were really dissatisfied. And I really felt that because I couldn't do any more. And all I could say to them was, just keep asking your teachers next year, the year after, do your GCEs, GCSEs, do your A-levels, keep asking questions. And then at the end of the session, we wrapped up, and I was sort of feeling quite proud of myself that I was you know, trying to inspire these kids, keep curious, keep asking questions. And the teacher said, right, that's the end of the lesson. Uh, we're going to go to break 15 minutes early today, so you need to eat your snack now. And the students were like, well, why? We normally have our break later on. And the teacher said, don't ask me any questions, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. But I think that when you're, when you're working in science communication, you have to understand your audience and you have to understand storytelling. That's another thing that I would use, storytelling and pictures and trying to appeal to people's sense of or a level of knowledge, but also discussing through images as well. So you can try and understand what, what they know. And so in my work, in fact, no matter what age group I'm working with, I'd like to get people to draw for me what they are thinking and what they're understanding so I can try and see inside their minds. And, and you know, often it's also mathematical too, but nothing is better than a drawing of what do you think this magnetic field is, is, wow. is, is structured like or how is it evolving? How is it changing with time? And do you find with younger people, they're far... Like, if you asked me to draw... So, something it's that abstract. I, I, I think I would freeze up. I don't think I like. Do, does a younger mind just have a shot at it? Do they just go, yeah, okay, and then just come up with anything? And then I find like as an yeah. adult, I think I'd sort of lock up. They normally do actually. Yeah. yeah, they normally do. So I'm always with my students. I get them to practice and practice yeah. and just get comfortable with it because we need to find some way to communicate. And, and it will be using mathematics, but it's not always that way. And people have different approaches and different ways of thinking about things and visualizing things and thinking things through. So if it's not mathematics, then it needs to be some kind of diagram, some mm. kind of drawing that helps. You know, I mean, Feynman diagrams, it's perhaps one example that you want to get something across, a huge amount of information really succinctly, and a diagram can do that. Sorry, you're, uh, um, you, you had a question as well. I did have a question. I, just the way you were talking about questioning and the way, uh, you know, when they were going, oh, we think the sun is perfect, so we're not going to question that. And, and now we've got a really different attitude towards the questions that we can ask. Do you ever get over... Well, like sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just a very casual observer to, uh, to, to all of this stuff. But sometimes there's so much information that it's frightening... Like, it's overwhelming. Do you ever get overwhelmed with how much and the pace of discovery and, and the... It, it just seems to be exponential. I don't know how you... Like, is, is, or is that something where you go, this is just amazing, it's great, and it, or do you ever just go, oh, my God, this is, like, daunting? 
I never feel it's daunting. I feel super excited that there's so much to look at and so much to analyze. So I feel like a kid in a sweet shop yeah. with the amount of data there is out there now. Um, and, but I do feel when new data sets arrive, so for example, maybe we build a new telescope and it looks at an object in a different way using a different wavelength of light or a higher spatial resolution, I do enjoy that feeling of, of sort of unfamiliarity with mm. the data. Yes. And there was um, one mission that I felt that really strongly with, which launched in 2006. It was a Japanese mission, and we have a telescope on board. And it was looking at the sun in a different way. And I remember the first data set I saw of the sun's atmosphere. And I actually said, uh, is, is that an artist's impression? <laughs> because mm. it looked so unfamiliar to me. Mm. And I loved that feeling of this really familiar object that I'd been studying for years, and I still didn't know it. I still yeah. didn't really know it. And so, and that drives me on, that you just want to look as much as you can to get to really know these objects and really understand what they are and what they're like. Um, but this, this influx of data is, is amazing. I mean, yes. the, the, and it's not just the, you know, the number of images we have, but it's the kind of images, it's the wavelengths of light, it's seeing in more and more detail. And actually, that I do find overwhelming because it's, it's, it's okay when you look at a whole object and you sort of see the context, but then when you start to zoom in and look at tiny little bits, so like one jigsaw piece, you feel disoriented mm. because you can't quite work out where is that and how does it connect to the thing next to it because I can't see the thing next to it anymore. So the, the work that's happening now, particularly in solar physics, is, is becoming really challenging. And our new telescopes will show us these little tiny regions on the sun that we've never been able to see before. Um, but then to deal with the volumes, we're having to come up with new techniques and new processing and new ways of, uh, of, of using the data. So there's a, maybe a kind of you know, two paths that are growing. One is that the humans still look at it and still analyze it. And the other one is that the the computers look at it and analyze right. it and then tell us. Yeah. Well, we've told the computers what to look, at, look for and then the computer tells us back, yeah. these are the kind of things that I found in the data set. And I find that oh, sort of slightly uneasy because what will we miss if that's the approach that we use? So right. I'm very much a fan of, I, I want to look at the data, yeah. which is a really tedious process. I have to have lots of collaborators and students and other people to help out with that. I yeah, can't. I sometimes get told off that when, when sometimes doing shows about science that are just fun, 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 and someone sometimes says, yeah, you need to add some really boring bits because otherwise people who've come to see your show when they're 14 will go, well, it looked fun <laughs> when it was just a mad old man in a cardigan jumping around and shouting about the universe. I've just been going through all of this data for years and it turned out my theory was wrong. Yeah. Thank you. Was, I was watching... A, I, I, you know, I was watching a bunch of, of clips today, and and there was just, it was just this there was a, a thing that you did, and and you were in it looked like just a collection of sheds. Were you going? <laughs> oh, this is where we we just build this stuff that's going to orbit the sun. And it looked like my dad's workshop, <laughs> yeah. and there was like bits of iron metal on the ground, and you're going, oh, we we design it here, and it looked like it it just looked like I'd dreamt it up. Like if yeah. I was pretending I was sending stuff to the sun, that's exactly. <laughs> I go. I build it here in the garage, and I measure it up with this hammer. And but there was like there was this sort of I don't know this workman. It's like a workbench. And you're going. That's going to the fucking sun. <laughs> what? Like, do you ever just go, guys? <laughs> like, that's incredible. And the bit that I couldn't stop laughing. Those you're standing next to what looked like a sort of 1970s TV antenna. 
And you said um, that, you know, if there are um, if there are signals being sent out from other uh, other life that we might, you know, it's like needle in a haystack stuff, but we could possibly one day pick up some signal, any signal. And, and it really looked like yeah. what my parents had on top of their house in the late 70s. Yeah. But I just, everything about it was so... Uh, I, yeah, I, I, it didn't feel r real or something. It was incredible. I, like, I don't yeah. even know what my question is. I just spent the whole time laughing. <laughs> maybe, maybe oh, your question is, do you mainly work in sheds? Uh, yes, I do, and I love working in sheds. And I love the fact... So I, I should give some background to your... Um, to your perspective, because it, it, it is a really interesting place that I work, and it's, it, I, I work in this um, Victorian mansion, which is not your normal space lab, but that's how we have it at UCL, just for historical reasons. We, uh, the guys moved out there in the 1960s from UCL. So UCL was the first university to do space research in the UK, and we had a rocket group, and when that um, grew, they outgrew the premises, so we moved out to Surrey in the 1960s. And whoever was in charge at the time I was like well quite fancy living in Surrey and well, what you know end of the second world war after that Victorian mansions are going fairly cheap and oh we'll have that one in Holmbury St Mary thank you very much <laughs> and so that's where we are still based and our instruments for space that we design on site and we build on site begin their lives physically in the old potting sheds of the Victorian mansion <laughs> so for the last what is it 50 years that's where things have have started their lives and and it's my favorite place because you go in and and it smells like a garage it smells yeah, you know the yeah. oil and then you see some files and you see lathes and and okay my dad's an engineer so I grew up around right. these kind of things and, and our garage was like this we had a lathe in the garage and we had you know clamps and files and so on and and so I love that kind of really tangible side of it yeah. that ultimately we want to explore the depths of space but it starts by a group of people with an idea with a design cutting up bits of aluminium they would probably say it's a bit more technical than that but you know <laughs> so they start with metal and screws and they and they build these amazing instruments and then they come into the main house and we put them we have a big uh, not bigger vibration facility so we can shake them up we can cycle them through um, temperature extremes so you know maybe they're going to the surface of mars and we want to make sure that um, the mechanisms will move in the temperature extremes on mars and they get tested there and then they might get sent off to the european space agency to be tested with them and they might come back and backwards and forwards and then eventually they get put on the spacecraft that will take them to wherever they're going and it, That's just and it honestly does start yeah. in in a shed yeah with people with you know with the stuff in here in our in our minds it's just because i think this is the thing when i meet a lot of people they'll say oh you know you work in space you work in science work in space science it must be a load of boffins and it's really not we are just normal people mm. with a with a passion and a curiosity and and our engineers, you know, lots of them will build their own cars. They build their own, like, mini steam engines. At lunchtime, there'll be model aircraft flying around the site because they're just like, well, I fancy building a thing. And, you know, if I build this thing for Mars or I build this thing for my car, it's God. kind of, it's all engineering. Wow. So, if I built a car, 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> the cars they build are, are amazing. <laughs> One guy has this sports car. It looks like a 1960s sports car. And you hear it coming up the hill. You're like, oh my God, he's bringing his car in. And, and they'll be like, yeah, and I bought this Land Rover and I stripped it down. So, But, you know, it starts from a small piece of knowledge and yeah. learning, doesn't it? And then you go up and up and up. And I come from a, a the family of engineers and it reminded me of the work surfaces in the garage when my brother would pull apart, like he would buy an old car and then just pull apart the engine and detail and put it back in. And yeah. that's what your yeah. workplace looked like, but it's going to the sun. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah. you know, we, it's testing, testing, testing to make sure that it will survive the conditions. But it is engineering. It's understanding how things go together, how materials respond in different temperatures. It's about the, the electronic circuit that makes this thing work and, and what the computer does, you know, the brains of the instrument, how it's operated and so on. But it's, it's things that you learn at school and at university. It's just applied then in one of the most extreme environments that you could possibly apply it to. <laughs> now, um, you brought some books on as well. We should mm. talk about books. It's called Book Shambles. I've just remembered now. Um, so can I ask you first, was there a point, was there any particular book when you were young, when you were a child, that you thought, oh, this idea of space, this idea of the behaviour of stars and the structure of the universe, there's something in this and was there any, were there any particular authors that drew you into that world? I have to say I was a big magazine reader um, so I used to steal my brother's 2000 AD to read that. So Judge Dredd was one of my early heroes. I don't know what that says about me, but um, one of my early crushes, I think, maybe I'd put it that way. It's very worrying. So Dan Dare was a space vicar, as we found out. From yeah. our, whereas Judge Dredd was basically a... Well, he was a fascist, wasn't he? He yeah. was the... Uh, the yeah, I don't, I don't like looking back to my early years. Of yeah, let's, let's not talk about why you've been drawn to fascism. Let's get back to stars. Um, this has gone horribly wrong. <laughs> so I... I crushed the poor. What? Yeah. Yeah, let's just smooth, uh, smooth the on for that. Um, I was a big fan of um, a magazine called Astronomy Now. That was what got me into astronomy. And because it was all the latest news coming out regularly, and I loved that. I, and they had this, um, uh, this segment called Absolute Beginners, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant. So it was designed for people like me who knew absolutely nothing about astronomy um, to, to, to find out the basics. But before that, I was very much into um, just the world around me, curiosity about the world around me, which was um, the back garden. So mm. I was always out there counting the number of butterflies on the Buddleia, looking at the wildlife. And so David Attenborough was my kind of childhood person to go to. So his, whenever his programmes were on, my parents would always <laughs> shout down, you, know, you see Lucy come and watch these programmes. So I was more... It was more, it was other media that influenced me, I think, rather than books per se. And I, and I grew up in the countryside, and we were sort of talking earlier mm. about the creativity that comes, I think, with having boredom yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then being looking around you for things to do. And so I was a big fan of just going out into the world around me, doing, and you know, I used to make my dad take me on um, wildlife walks at night to go and see what nature was out at night versus what was out in the day. You sound like so, such an amazing child. My kids suck. I don't, I don't think my parents would say it that way. <laughs> Maybe my kids had never said, Mum, can we go on a wildlife walk tonight? <laughs> They're like, oh, on the iPad. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, I didn't have anything like that. So That's we exactly had a small house with loads of people in it. And to get any space, you had to go outside. Mm. So I was a big cyclist. We had um, clay pits on our doorstep. So I used to go down the clay pits and climb the old 
rusty um, kit that they had there. You know, it never occurred to me that I was trespassing. Never occurred to me that it was. Uh, the uh, clay pits had filled with water, so we'd go swimming. We'd look, be looking at the plant life there. So that was, that was the kind of thing. My brother was the massive bookworm in the family, but I liked to get out of the house. There were four kids, very little space, and I wanted to get away from that, and so I would go outside to explore. That's great. The value of boredom is something... In fact, with Alan Moore, I remember talking about that a while ago, where you go, that bit where there's nothing to do, you don't realise till you know, years later. Ah! That's what fueled these strange drawings. Or, you know, Alan, when he was talking about the fact, looking at a photograph and going, do they know I'm looking at them? You know, that yeah, comes from right. having nothing else to do. If you're building yeah. a temple and killing a pig on Minecraft, you're not staring at old family photos, wondering if the ghosts lie in the negative. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. an That's intriguing so thing. And we don't... I, I think uh, we don't have those bored spaces anymore I mean I, I really think that that people are now doing mindful meditation I say people I'm doing mindfulness <laughs> like I'm trying to find that space where I'm bored like we you you have to schedule it into your day <laughs> okay and you get an alarm on my phone that tells me to go and meditate I'm gonna go upstairs and meditate you know because I'm crazy and you know you go upstairs <laughs> and you stare into space for 15 minutes I've got to have an alarm on my phone to remind yeah. me to do that yeah it's not good is it I think I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of boredom and I'm a big fan of not having constant stimulation. And, and I, I, like you, I struggle to find it now. And even, you know, my job should be about being creative. And even in my job, I have to put, you know, a one-hour block aside where I can be creative and think about physics rather than doing all the other tasks that we have to do. And I don't know. I think maybe this is why my holidays always turn into working holidays because mm. actually... What's when, a working holiday? What is that? Because when I'm on holiday, that's the only time when I'm not in the office and I can actually just think. But you've got the sun. Yeah, it's always no matter there, where you go. there looking over me. Yeah, it's Holiday like, in the sun, <laughs> oh, piss off. Lying on the beach. Yeah. I know, exactly. You just... It's a busman's There line, it is. It? Yeah. <laughs> Stop chasing me. So I'm a big fan of walking holidays as well. So you just leave the house and walk somewhere for, you know, aim to get somewhere in five, six, seven, eight, nine... 10 days time and that's just then you can't get on your phone because you're normally in a field and there's no reception and then you can just think and talk and just you know just let your mind wander yeah. that's the only time it happens yeah. well, for me anyway there's a wonderful book about walking a man called john hillaby who traveled around the world and he wrote a book in 1967 called journey through britain where he walked across britain and it was just when he really he realized it was all changing in terms of the structure of towns, in terms of individual shops going, all of that. And it's a very, very beautiful book of kind of cultural observation, bits of psychogeography, and just the whole thing brought together. And I think there's, and there are a lot of other, you know, Robert McFarlane and people like that as well who write very interesting books about those kind of ideas of what happens when you just start walking and you think, I don't know where this is going to end yeah, up. But yeah. and someone who I mentioned when we did the previous podcast as well, John Higgs's journey uh, up Watling Street, you know, the, the, that that road and what what he gathers from that so you've brought those um four books with you can you explain um, the uh yeah so i i bought different ones well, one's mine just in case you asked me a question and i could remember it <laughs> <laughs> that's how bad my memory is so i bought um a couple of biographies and memoirs because I, I i'm a big fan of those i, I love the stories i love people's experiences but i also bought a poetry book um so Simon Barraclough is a poet, actually, that I ended up working with, and he wrote an anthology about the sun. And it was really interesting to get to know him and have my sort of 
not necessarily passion for poetry rekindled, but you know, it wasn't really something I'd looked at since being at school. And then I started reading again when I met him. And he's written this lovely book of poems. This one that I brought in is about the sun, but he's done lots of sort of space-related poetry. And he has a really quirky side. He's really funny, but he's also you know, really sad as well. And in, and in that book, there's, there's an interesting series of poems in there. So you know, when you think about you know, ancient civilizations' approaches to the sun, views of the sun, writings about the sun, it's, it's often that the sun is anthropomorphized, or the sun is thought of in kind of terms of fire and war. But in that book, the anthropomorphic anyway, you know what I mean. The anthropomorphizing of the sun, kind of he takes it, he takes it one step further, and he has this series of poems where he writes from the sun's perspective. And he has these poems where he um, where the sun is talking about artists, so Van Gogh and Seurat and Miro, and his views on these artists. And I just thought they were so lovely. And for me, the kind of that personification of the sun looking back at us, looking up at the sun and using the sun for inspiration, I just thought it was this lovely kind of circle. So that, that book is, is really delightful. I recommend people read it. It's called uh, Sunspots. That's the thing. Richard Feynman talked about that. He talked about the fact, you know, what men are poets who can talk of the of, of, of Jupiter as a man, but won't write of Jupiter as a great big gas giant. You know, I think that's. A, <laughs> and then there's quite interesting pieces of his work where they were broken up slightly, and like there's the one where um, I stand at the uh, shores of the ocean. You know that one, and he and he talks about looking out of the ocean and thinking of when it had been a lifeless planet, and thinking of that moment where in water there were molecules that began to replicate. And he does this whole, and then it just ends with uh, I, uh, a universe of atoms, an atom in yeah. the, in the universe. Um, but that's a very, I mean, that moment I think of of the the collision of of art and science. I think Jocelyn Bell Burnell mm. put together a, a a book of poetry yeah. uh, with someone else. I think called Dark Matter, which is again lots of different poems where, with people ex expressing fascination with with the universe from a scientific perspective and yeah. meter, yeah. which is hard. It is hard, and and in that book, it's very graphical as well. So some of them are not just about the words, but it's about the way the words are laid out on the page, and I love that too. So there's all kinds of things that you can do playing with words. And, and it was interesting to work with a poet because it, ultimately we're all thinking about the language we use. And, and often in science, I think we can be really misleading because when we try and do this thing, not the dumbing down, but we try and make it um, accessible for a, a wide audience. And, and so as an example on the sun, we have um, this phenomenon that we call rain, coronal rain. And so it kind of works because you think, ooh, it's rain. I, you know, I know rain, it falls on the sky and it's wet and blah, blah. But it's actually really misleading that we call it that because it's not a liquid that's falling in the atmosphere of the sun. It's not something that's condensed in clouds and then is coming down. It's, it, there are other things happening, other physical processes happening. And so I started to think about when we were communicating our work, are we doing ourselves a favour by trying to find these common words or are we actually doing ourselves and, and, and who we're discussing with a disservice because we put false physical processes in people's minds? And so that was why it's interesting to work with a poet who's thinking about every single word and how those words come across and how those words are put together. And I don't know that I have a solution for, for what troubles me about this, but when we make discoveries in science, I just think we should think a bit more deeply about how we 
use language to describe them. Because, and it's difficult, because when you discover something, you, you, by definition, you probably don't know what it is. You, you observe something for the first time, you don't know what it is. So you go, oh, let's draw on my terrestrial experience. That looks like rain. I'm going to call it rain. And then 5, 10, 15 years later, we realize, oh, no, it's actually nothing like rain. But you can't rename it. So it's I'm trying to remember late. what was John Wheeler when he said, I can't remember what they used to call black holes, but in 1967 he went, whatever it was, this hugely unwieldy term, and he went, we've got to come up with something better than that. And they went, yeah, black holes, <laughs> that seems to work. You know? They did it, they yeah. rebranded. But then so dark matter and dark energy, you've created a lot of problems with that, haven't you? Oh, God, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm quite envious of those phrases, actually, because they're so mysterious, aren't they? Big questions wrapped up in what dark energy and dark matter are. And in the solar physics community, we quite often sort of say to ourselves behind, you know, the do closed doors of conferences, oh, what's our equivalent to dark energy and dark matter? And could we possibly have something that's to do with the sun that is, you know, the dark mystery? We haven't come up with it yet, but we'd love that thing that has that mysterious hook that is very um, enticing for the general public. Now, your next book is uh, not uh, a science book at all. <laughs> uh, it's... Um, by uh, a, a yes. brilliant comedian and yeah, writer. Yeah, Tina Fey. So um, this is one of the books I read recently, and I've just been mindful of um, how brilliant Tina Fey is. And so I first came across her, really, when she was doing the Sarah Palin impersonations on, online. And she was absolutely brilliant. And then I started reading about her, and I realised she became a head writer of Saturday yeah, first Night female, first, first female head writer. And she was and about 30, I think. She yeah, was really so young. She's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. And, and I absolutely love this book called Bossy Pants. I read it in a very short number of days. And, and that's really unlike me, because I'm not a massive reader. I, I read so many scientific papers at work that when I come home at night, I'm a bit like, oh, I can't see anything anymore. I just need to not be reading words on a page, because I start to dance around. But this book, I, I absolutely um, raced through. And, and what I really liked about this was her, her, her discussion about her formative years mm. and, and her local community. Someone had been generous enough to have uh, um, to put on um, a local theatre, community theatre, and it was very much this vehicle for young people to come and be creative and support each other. And the older ones organised, and the younger ones came in and learned, and they put on shows for the local community. And I just, I don't know, it's just something really nice about, again, that coming back to how you spend your time and you're bored enough you look around oh there's a local theatre community I'm going to go and be part of that and then mm. the creativity that comes out of it so I, I that was really yeah quite and 30 provoking. Rock's a work of genius isn't it it yeah. is it's amazing yeah. But yeah, when I was saying we were talking about this backstage you know like everyone's got their sort of default thing that they go to on YouTube just to defrag. I often just watch uh, speeches that she's done at um, awards ceremonies and uh, I think the AFI was honouring Steve Martin and she came out and did a speech. And it's every single one, every single clip, it is just like five hard-hitting gags per minute. It's just, she just knocks it out of the park every time. She's such an amazing writer and performer. Yeah. And Golden Globes. Uh, Golden Globes with Amy yeah. Poehler. Uh, she's presented at the Academy Awards with uh, Robert Downey Jr. She's she's presented stuff with Steve Martin at the... just. I mean, just indulge yourself. It's amazing. Just all these little, you know, she never gets, she never does a, a bad awards presentation. I've got to say, Steve Martin presenting the Oscars because that that's another great book about stand, born standing up. If you've not read it, Steve, have you read Steve Martin's book? No, it's a fantastic no. book. He's about, one of my favourite hosts of the Oscars it, too. That that moment where where there was uh, what's his name, Michael. Uh, 
yeah, Michael Moore, he ended up making a speech about, you know, these are fake times. Before he knew, oh, my God, he thought those were fake times. Yeah. Don't you? And, uh, and, he, and he did the speech and kind of some people booed and stuff. And then Steve Martin came out and he said, oh, the Oscars is such a great occasion. Just everyone, so much love. I've just seen the Teamsters helping Michael Moore into the boot of his car. Not many people know, but Mickey Rooney is actually as old as the earth. That's right. Um, yeah, sitting way at the back. Vin <laughs> Diesel's here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, final two books we've run oh, out of yeah. time already, well, yeah. so we better. Uh, now I know the final book is a fantastic book, but oh, before we get to best. yours, yes, yeah, I know, I know, I shouldn't have bought that long really, but I felt obliged to. Um, so and, uh, it's another one by uh, another female um, author, scientist Hope Jaron, who's an American um, professor of geobiology, and this is just a lovely book about her life and her passion for plants and it kind of spoke to me because I was it made me think back to my childhood of just being obsessed by what was out in the back garden and what I could observe and what I could study the, the world around me but she's made an actual career out of it and and this book is lovely she interweaves these chapters about her life and her experiences as a female scientist with um, with, with the science of, of what she works on as well. And so, you know, there's all kinds of things here about, you know, the struggles in academia, for constant battles for funding. So this, she's got these sort of themes of survival. On the one hand, the humans and plant survival, and the other hand, the survival of a scientist as well. So it's quite a gritty read, you know, the realities of we don't just get money on a plate. We're always battling to get funding, to justify what we do, to say we're deserving of public funds and that we'll do good things with public funds. And, and yeah, this, this book I really liked. And, you know, women in science obviously is an important issue for me too. So it, it's important for me to read female scientists. And, um, and yeah, I and, and she's out there also doing her bit too. So And she talks a lot about when she's younger playing so she would go her father was a scientist and she would go to his laboratory and and it was like playing with all the toys and I think that's a really great way of summing up science it is like playing it's oh this thing over here and what does it do you know and children naturally play and and play is all about you know self-directed activity and you learn through it and science is is exactly that yeah. self-directed what do I want to do what do I want to learn and and I think it's you know, also interested in the fact that at primary school, school is it is play. It's mm. based around play, and then you go to secondary school, and boom, suddenly it's academic and it's book work and it's learning. And, I, and it kind of makes me sad. How can we keep play going into secondary school? Because when you come to university, it's back like playing again. Yeah. But somehow in in the middle, it it can be lost if we're not careful. But interestingly, like across the arts, like when you sort of you're talking about that with science, I think with art, great art is playful. Like, the, it's interesting to the, the same principles of what it's actually about. You know, like, you know, when, when comedians are fantastic, it's their playfulness. It's because they act like they don't care what the consequences yeah. are. That's a play mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did art when I left school. I went to do art, first of all, because I wanted to be an artist. And, and, and I agree with you. And, and that was very much, you know, what, what thoughts and ideas do I have? And how is that literally playing out on the, on the canvas? But I think people don't often appreciate that science is exactly like that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah that play thing is, I, I know, I'm sure you've experienced it when you go to schools, the teachers who desperate 
to have the space to do the lessons, which are basically, here are stories, here are the things, this is not just the facts, this is not just the equations, and they have, you know, unfortunately a succession of uh, education secretaries really don't want there to be a joy of learning. Yeah. They don't want people to leave wanting to know more. They just go, good, you've got the correct number of facts, you yeah. may leave now. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great... I was going to say, uh, we, we have run out of time, but I was gonna, I'm sure you've read Jana Levin's How the Universe Got Its Spots. Ah, uh, I have it. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. She's another great, yeah. uh, fantastic... Also, you might have read this, because... Uh, do, you, do you know about oh, the zookeeper? Don't put me on the spot! You better have read this! You bloody better have read this! <laughs> um, the, um, yeah. the Zookeeper's Daughter by Di- Di- Diane Ackerman. <laughs> I haven't read it. Oh, well, that was the whole point. The end of the thing was meant to be your well, reveal about that. Well, we're out of time, that. guys. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Um, oh, I just saw it. Oh, no, it doesn't matter. Your final book is... Oh, well... Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's my book. So I, I honestly only bought this in case I needed it as a prop. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what it looks like, guys. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, I love the cover of this. So talking about images and so on. So the, the publishers have come up with this amazing sort of eclipse that's really vibrant. And I had nothing to do with it. I wish I did, but I absolutely love this cover. But actually, the cover of the hardback version, I did get to design. I was really pleased about that. And, um, and so it's a picture of the sun, and we, I sort of annotated it with different features so that when you're reading the book, you can always look at the cover and go, oh, well, what she's talking about, actually, that's it there. And um, the picture of the sun is the sun um, at the time I got married, so it's kind of special sun as well. Oh, that's so, beautiful. Yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> and, and I have that picture framed in my front room uh, that my husband got for me as a, as a present, but he... Um, he got the wrong wavelength of light. So oh, he's, I an, know, he's what so an a-hole. Close. He was so close. Your husband I know sounds that like guy. a That jerk. guy's a goon. Yeah. He really yeah. is a goon. Um, he doesn't know me. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that's, uh, um, we've run out of time. It's uh, a great... Uh, there were many other things I wanted to... A, a, a book I found very interesting recently, Origin Story by David Christian, who's part of the Big History Project. Mm. That whole thing of... I don't know how you feel about... When, when we have creation myths, it seems all children will get taught them, but now we actually have some evidence-based idea about how the universe began. It becomes something which is kind of for the specialists or only those who are specifically interested. And I wonder, yeah, just, just to yeah. end on how, how you feel that, you know, that story of the Big Bang seems to be an important thing for people to, to know about, for everyone. Yeah. Well, it's making me remember that a few years ago I read, um, so I think I've got this right, that... In um, the national curriculum, you have to do religious education up to GCSE. Have I got that right? Maybe it's not the case anymore, but I think it was a few years ago. And as part of that syllabus, one of the lessons needed to be about creation theories of other um, other ideas, so non-religious creation theories. And I always thought, God, I should write a religious religious education lesson that is about the Big Bang and the Big Bang Theory. I've yet to do it, so if it's still in the curriculum, somebody let me know afterwards. Anyway. Well, have a, yeah, David Christian's take on it in Origin Story is very good. Mm. Um, thank you very much, Professor Lucy Green. Thank you very much, Sarah Kendall. Thank you very much, live audience. Thank you very much, Patreon audience. Thank you very much, audience who have just listened to this for, for free, but you get a smaller thank you. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> And thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. So this is the end of this particular uh, book shambles science season. Thanks very much for coming on. (laughs) Sorry, hang on.
I forgot to ask you, Lucy, I've got this Space 1999 annual. How likely is it that a moon base we eventually build could be blasted off uh, the moon and become a fractured piece of the asteroid and travel to other planets populated by aliens? Zero. Thanks very much. Lucy Green. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles, as always, to support the podcast. There's a new episode of the Science Shambles podcast out tomorrow, which is a very bookish edition as Robin chats to Julia Shaw and Gina Rippon about their two new books that have just come out, Making Evil and The Gendered Brain. They'll be out tomorrow. Well, the books won't be. They're already out. Uh, the episode will be out tomorrow. So go to wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Science Shambles or go to cosmicshambles.com slash science shambles to subscribe and listen to those episodes. We'll be back next week. Until then, be good to each other. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Man Productions.